Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Porrick Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. Hey Porrick, um, welcome back to the country. You were away this weekend. I was, I went to Wales to get away from the Dragons. <laughs> I love it, it's like a part exchange. Galway gets the Dragons rugby team and Wales gets you. I think Wales got the best out of that deal. I think they might have. <laughs> yeah, a real festival of rugby this weekend between internationals, Pro 14. It was pretty wall to wall for the whole weekend. It really, really was and you know we're going to talk through all of it. Absolutely. Um, before we do, don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, SoundCloud, Acast, Stitcher, Spotify, and all podcast apps. And if you like the podcast, give us a rating, like it, and subscribe. Even if you don't, just like and subscribe anyway. <laughs> before we get into the weekend's rugby, uh, let's talk news. And we have the World Player of the Year nominees announced. And from an Irish perspective, Johnny Sexton's on the list. And for me, he's got to be a shoo-in this year. Yeah, and he's joined on the list by Rico Ioanni and Bowden Barrett from the All Blacks and Malcolm Marks and Fafta Clerk from the Springboks. Good company. Very good company. And like all people deserving to be on that list. But I just think that drop goal in well, Paris. The drop goal, the double. Like It's been a good year for Mr. Sexton. It really has. And I think sometimes you've got to just look at the awards the team have won around the player and just give it that way. Well, look, I mean, certainly if he hands out a beating to uh, to the All Blacks in Dublin, that will go some way towards persuading people. And if he does, he'll be the first Irish player to win World Player of the Year since Keith Woods. That's right. And speaking of firsts, we had a first in the UK as well. Sarah Cox became the first female referee to take charge of a top flight game, which was the Premier Rugby Cup match on Sunday between Northampton and Wasps. Yeah, it's really good. Really good to see. Like, you know, like the likes of Joy Neville, Sarah Cox breaking those barriers and just paving a way for female referees. Yeah, I know we were watching her in the women's HSBC 7s a couple of weeks ago. Really competent ref, really good communicator. So, about time. Sure is. And it's about time Toulon actually won a game. Yeah, finally beat Perpignan, but had a, an unwanted effect on one of their star players. Julian Sevea um, managed to fall asleep at the wheel and flipped his car. Luckily, according to his wife's Instagram, everyone is okay, but really dramatic and I think obviously people were concerned as to whether it might have been drink driving I know he's had problems in the past but all the news says it was just a a bit out of narcolepsy or something he just seemed to be tired driving and you know it's just as dangerous it is something we all need to be watchful of definitely and in other news also of a new CEO in Johnny Petrie former Scotland captain he's coming from Edinburgh where he was the MD Managing director? Yeah, and obviously has then worked with Dan McFarlane, the new head coach as well before. So it seems like the ship is starting to settle there, which is good after the couple of years they've had. Was it that the cart leading the horse or the horse leading the cart? Hey, look, you know what? It's there. And uh, that kind of moves us neatly into the games for the weekend, where first up on Friday night was Edinburgh playing host to the Scarlets and getting a win, 31 points to 21. Yeah, that news didn't seem to like affect their on-field performance. You know, they started really strong. Yeah, they were all over the Scarlets in the first half. And you were kind of watching this game trying to figure out which way is it going to swing. You don't expect these two teams to be as evenly matched as they were on Friday. Edinburgh's pack has been very strong all season. I think the losses Scarlets have taken over the summer are really starting to show effect. And this game proves it. Particularly with the double effect of losing their internationals. There just seemed to be less of an impact on Edinburgh or more ability for them to bring some players up. Having said that, Scarlets were really scrappy. Like Scarlets are a team who know how to win, and they don't like to lose against particularly conference rivals. And they were pretty much in this game, and on 50 minutes, they actually edged ahead. But Edinburgh just had this extra gear to ratchet up to. The fear of Richard Cockrell. (laughs) 
I love how you just have this motivational thing. He's just there in the stands waving his fist at them all of the time. Old man waves that cloud. This is it. But you know what? You mentioned Edinburgh's pack, and that was a real strength for them in this game. Definitely the case of forwards deciding who would win and then backs by how much. The forwards for Edinburgh were just winning the collisions, and they were really dominant around the breakdown. But on top of that, you know, they had some really good play in their back line. Hickey and Christine were just the standouts for them. Christine made so many yards with ball in hand. And given that he was up against Kieran Fonatia, who was coming back from a suspension for the Scarlets, another really classy player, definitely outplayed him, kind of put him in his pocket. Um, and that was with Fonatia still playing well. But that's kind of what Scarlets had, individual performances. You know, he he played well. And so did Johnny McNichol, who always kind of just plays well for the Scarlets. He's a really, really good player. But par- part of the problem was he wasn't getting into the game enough. And you've got to put... A little bit of the blame here at Dan Jones, who has been having a nightmare season. He played quite well last year when he came in towards the end of the season in the run-in, deputising for Reese Patchell. He's just had a nightmare start this year, and he's playing so deep, and he's then passing the ball even deeper. The back line is just set up wrong. It doesn't play for their game. But what's really not helping him is the fact his pack is getting bullied and put on the back foot and getting slow ball, so he has to play that deep. And when you look at it as well, there were some nice personnel matches here. Sam Hidalgo-Klein, obviously, playing for Scarlets, having previously played for Edinburgh for the last several seasons. So kind of an interesting enough game, I think, from that perspective. But hard to tell, second string sides and everybody was kind of playing for maybe a bench spot when both teams are back up to full strength. That's that's a similar story across a few of the matches, including the next one. Um, Ospreys halted Glasgow and lost 20 points to 29. Yeah, this is one that the Ospreys would have targeted given how much of the Scotland squad is coming from Glasgow at the moment. They will have been really, really disappointed. And they struck first as well. But then Glasgow came back with a quick fire double, two tries for Matawalu, and they never looked back. But the second half was pretty much the same story. Ospreys came out firing, then Glasgow just scored tries and ran away with it. Yeah, Matawalu getting his hat-trick on 50 minutes and then the try bonus point inside an hour. Yeah, Glasgow never really looked like losing this one. And in all fairness, the last try for Ospreys was just... A lucky 50-50 bounce that favoured them. Yeah, that kick through was... I mean, it was a nice idea, but nine times out of ten, or, well, certainly five times out of ten, that ends up in touch or bounce into the defending player, and it just sat up really well for the Ospreys. But let's be perfectly honest, these were two very second-string teams. You can tell who the regular starters were. You know, Griggs, Vandermerwe, Matawalu, Harley, Gibbons for Glasgow. You know, they showed they were starters. Yeah, and the same thing for the Ospreys. Like There was a lot of younger players or fringe players, but Davies, Evans and Dirksen were where all of their attacking verve was coming from, and particularly Evans coming from fullback. You know, he was dealing with an awful lot of kick tennis and did relatively well, but there isn't a whole lot I think either side is going to learn from this game, other than I think the Ospreys will leave very frustrated who have got zero points from an interconference fixture. And there's a lot of interconference fixtures this weekend, you know, because the next day, one of the few Pro 14 games played, Benetton hosted Ulster in another interconference match and lost 10 points to 15. They will have been absolutely furious about this. Like Of the two Italian sides, Benetton probably were less impacted by the internationals. There just seemed to have been more players left with the team. And you'd have to think this was on the list of must-win games at the start of this season for them. And they started really well. Like, they had a try inside three minutes and spent the entire rest of the first half basically camped on Ulster's 22. It's like they remembered how to play 
when they're a man down, but all the time just holding on to the ball. Yeah, they were throwing the ball around. Like there was some really nice offloading and thinking on their feet. Like you can just tell how much better a side they are when Tommaso Allen is at ten. Yeah, they are so much better with him playing, and they're unlucky not to be further ahead at half time. Yeah, just kind of narrowly missing out on a try, and they did still lead going into half time, but obviously Ulster got a shooing from the coaching team. Um, managed to hold on to the ball a bit, make some more direct runs, and then got a try in the corner shortly after halftime. And a yellow card for Benetton, and so rarely they concede. And from there, you just kind of think Ulster had a head of steam and were able to do enough to win. Yeah, well, I mean, that was Ulster's kind of last score. They didn't go anywhere near it for the last half an hour. They just held on to that lead. And Benetton had a couple of chances to win it, but knocked the ball on or gave away a penalty at the wrong moment. They really could have won this game, and they were unfortunate not to. Almost say they should have won this game. Probably, particularly given some of the performances on the Ulster side. Like, let it be said, I am now... Last week I wasn't sure if I was mental or the Air Sports commentary team were mental, awarding Henry Spate Man of the Match. Based on this week's performances, they are mental. (laughs) He was absolute garbage, Boric. He dropped so much ball, got bundled into touch, came over as this big physical winger, and he's rubbish. I'd say the young lads in Ulster are kind of going, I can't wait for you to be gone because I'm going to take that chance and shine. I don't think they're going to wait for him to be gone. Like He's getting outplayed by teenagers every week. Like, he was about as impactful as all of the tiny fruit flies that appeared to be harassing the referee the whole way through the game. (laughs) Um, Certainly his tackling was a lot less forceful. But you you know what? Benetton came out, played some ambitious-looking rugby. They did, though, need to convert better and score the points when they had that possession. Very much all shirt and no trousers. Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Ulster, for their part, looked decent when they ran direct. They just didn't have enough ball in the first half, and they were overcomplicating it when they did get their hands on it. And their scrum was pretty decent. For once, you know, and for the pack that they have and should be really dominating more, they're not very physical in contact and their lineup's pretty poor. It's a clown fiesta. It's genuinely appalling. And neither Benetton nor Ulster were able to consistently defend a driving mall. Both teams got so much change out of that attack. I am... There's not much more to be said about that, so we'll move on to the only other Pro 14 fixture on Saturday. Connacht hosting the Dragons and won 33 points to 12. Yeah, like bonus point win at home against the Dragons, or as we call it, standard. <laughs> <laughs> like, you won the game, even if you did do your level best to, to try and lose that one. We should have been 21 nil down after 20, 24 minutes. But from then on, it was just... Connacht time. It was just cruise control. Like I think after the Dragons butchered those couple of opportunities, they just lost their heads. They weren't really able to to pick themselves back up off the floor, and they didn't have Ross Moriarty there like screaming in their faces from their own perspective. And trying to kill people on the opposition's team. Yeah, or on anybody's team, or their own team. <laughs> yeah, no, it really was that missed opportunity on 22 minutes that led to our first try. Mm-hmm. Just go up the pitch and maul it over. Like I saw the highlights of this, and my lasting impression was just how scrappy it was yeah it really 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 was like it was a very dragonsy performance and connacht were lucky it wasn't a better team we were facing because they would have done a number on us in the opening half yeah nice to see daryl leader getting a bit of game time he uh, has been kind of conspicuously absent so far this year yeah, he came in last minute for kelleher and he kind of looked a bit like the player that got called into irish camp you could kind of see that class that was put him on that pedestal i think he should be starting more I certainly look, he's put his hand up for selection given the performance he had there. And I think what was nice as well, 
there was a couple of players really standing out for Connacht. Like Sean O'Brien is, he's just on the most incredible run of form. I think he's going to be another Connacht player, just really unlucky there. Some of the back row options that are in Irish camp at home because he's a phenomenal player. That's okay. He'll come and join Munster and get selected into the Ireland squad. Boy, just stop. <laughs> Leave our players alone. Um, Kobe Fienga was good, as was Tom Farrell as yeah, well for you. Tom Farrell needed that. Like He had a really, really poor game last week. And especially after Europe, we just needed players to just up their level a bit more. Like even the Butler, he's a, from my neighbour in town. Mm-hmm. To see him playing, firstly, from a Gaeltacht club that only started like 10, 15 years ago yeah. in the professional ranks is huge. And to see him actually be so competent and intelligent on the field is incredible to see. Well, it's turning into more of a provincial-wide team rather than just a Galway City team, which needed to happen. Definitely. Dragons, I mean, other than their usual tactic of dragging teams down to their appalling level and beating them with experience, they had created a lot of opportunities in the first quarter of the game. They just couldn't do anything with them. Yeah, and that's a concern. You know, some of those opportunities were made too easily. From a Connacht perspective, the defence for that was poor and it was just a symptom of a very slow start well from a conic perspective as well though you're missing the ruthless streak that john muldoon brought you guys last year like he was the kind of player who you know american history x open mouth on the curb and he stamps it down type of guy you know when we were 20 points ahead we were trying to force everything too much and we should have put 60 points if we just Played a bit smarter. Well, they're smarter, but I genuinely do think that you don't seem to have the mentality to put teams to the sword when they're there to be eviscerated. True. Then Dragons just, you know... They just have a lot of work-ons. <laughs> You're getting nicer about this every week, or you just stop caring. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much that you can say. And, you know, moving on to my second favourite topic, the Southern Kings... Uh, welcomed the champions Leinster down in Port Elizabeth. And this ended up being an awful lot closer than we would have expected. 31 points to 38, Leinster running out winners. But the Kings getting two bonus points. This could be the way for Kings to get points all season. Just get a losing bonus point and a draw bonus point at home. It's genuinely hard to motivate myself. Like, if we didn't have this podcast, then I could live in a world where this game simply never happened. (laughs) Look... We have to look at the match. We had to watch the match. And it was another... Uh, I don't (laughs) want to look at the match. It was another slow start for Leinster. And in a team that had missing 23 players between international call-ups and playing their third strength 12 at 10, you know, it's a bit understandable. It's slightly more forgivable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There was a very disrupted team and that kind of... That'll come through in another couple of combinations we talk about later. But... Even still, I was surprised at how dysfunctional the lineout was. You talk about certain combinations, but your hooker is always the one who throws it in, and your jumpers are always the ones who jump. There should have been a core team there between Tracy and Maloney who were familiar with each other from the last couple of seasons, and it was a real lottery for the first half. In what was an error-riddled first half, like too many knock-ons, sloppy play, balls kicked to God knows where. Passes to precisely no one. But they had the tri-bonus point by halftime. Yeah, and largely off the back of their scrum, which was, to say that it was dominant would be an understatement. Like, it was directly responsible for two yellow cards for the Kings. At one point, they were packing down six against eight. That is unbelievable. How teams haven't realised to just play ten man against the Kings is beyond me. Like, it's so easy. You just play simple, structured rugby. Do not give them the ball and you will beat the pants off them. I'd knock the ball on on purpose. <laughs> yeah, Probably. But Leinster did give them a lot of ball in the second half. 
and they came back into it, scored a ton of tries, and in one of the last plays of the game, got back to within that seven. Nobody, nobody would think this was not a good result for the Kings. And for Leinster, five points scored in the entire second half. It was unwatchable. But look, Leinster won. Their fans will be happy. The man should be like, a couple of weeks off, refresh the batteries and go again. Bonus point win away from home with a second string team is very much mission accomplished and the Kings will be delighted. Um, just from a weakness perspective, disappointing that Leinster managed to lose the second half. It's not often they do that. Um, and like the Kings, three yellow cards in the first half, a fourth yellow card in the second half. I don't know what you do with that. I don't know whether the coaching team don't have a plan for it or they've simply decided to spend their effort elsewhere. But their discipline continues to be like a massive, massive challenge for them. They're still scoring 30 plus points at home. I don't really get how that happens. <laughs> but you know what? It's a game that I wish I hadn't watched. And one of the games that I was actually kind of looking forward to watching, unfortunately, just TV scheduling this weekend, I wasn't able to catch the Cardiff against Zebra game. Yeah, either was I. And for what was a historic match, you know, Gethin Jenkins' final game, after a 19-year career. And at the top of a 19-year career, like played in Europe, played in Heineken Cups, played at the highest level, 126 caps for his country, British and Irish Lion. And no TV coverage in Ireland. Yeah, not a noted kicker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did like that he got the, the John Muldoon treatment of you take the last conversion kick, just unfortunate that he missed it. Oh yeah, it's such a shame we didn't get to see it, but... Cardiff won 37 to nil. Not a lot for Zebra to take out of this game in terms of positives. I think all their internationals were in Chicago. A lot of them were. Like, What's interesting, though, I had a look at some of the match reports, and they seem to have pretty similar possession. Like They both had nearly half of the ball, but you just look at the opportunities that Cardiff were creating, and in particular, the second half, four tries, they just blew them away. Yeah. Nick Williams looks to have had a stormer. And the scoreline really does come from the tackle stats, you know. 95% tackle completion for Cardiff, 84 for Zebra. There you go. Yeah, that kind of tells the story of it in a lot of ways. We'll have to check out the highlights of this one this week. Definitely. And the one I was obviously kind of both looking forward to, but also terrified of, because it was Munster playing away from home. A visit to the Highfeld in Bloemfontein and Cheetahs, 26, Munster, 30 points. A first away win in the Pro 14 for Munster. I know, which, like, we're in November. Not the best stat to be able to try and get over, but at least we've broken that record. A slightly frustrating game to watch, to be honest. We didn't really seem to be able to get any of our patterns going, but in a lot of ways, that's not surprising, given the lack of familiarity from 9 through to 13. Yeah, especially as Joey Carby's kind of really grown into the 10 role and he has been able to direct anyone around him at this season in Munster. So having the new people come in, a bit of rotation and rest, it just showed. Yeah, well, you look at that starting lineup and there was no Dan Goggin, no Sam Arnold, no Rory Scannell, who have started most of the games at centre for us this year. You have Tyler Blayendal playing at 12, first game in eight months. You've got Bill Johnston coming in at 10, making one of his, like, biggest career games for him um, played really well but individual performances rather than patterns but you did start to settle together and by the end of the first half you were the better team you were putting phases together and you were scoring tries yeah and it was still only 15 points to five ahead but the second half was just a disaster really sketchy performances no one is going to be taking this home from the highlights reel 
like got a try on 44 minutes, which was great, but then conceded three unanswered tries to the Cheetahs, who, let's remind everybody, are bottom of Conference A, are chronic so far this year. And you got caught out with one of the greatest lineup moves ever. Yeah, apparently if you just don't tackle the guy when he catches the ball, he'll just waltz directly through. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> like, it, that, yeah, it was kind of mortifying. And you you then had some weird substitutions happening. Ian Keithley came on, and he just looks like a player who is completely devoid of confidence at the moment. It's not surprising. You know, Joy Carver gets parachuted in from Leinster. Johnson starts this match over him. I don't I, I don't know if he started a game yet this year. And he's probably played, what, 80 minutes in total collectively? That's not great from his perspective. And he is a better player than he shows. Like, to be perfectly honest, he, he's a form player. And if his head's not in the right place, he doesn't seem to play well. No, and another monster kick from uh, Rory Scannell, although at altitude, slightly less impressive than last <laughs> week's effort. But look, mission accomplished as, as far as Munster's concerned. Five match points and the set piece is starting to improve. Yeah, the scrum looked good, and James Cronin had a particularly strong game at loosehead. Um, from a cheetah's perspective, though, they are so ridiculously dangerous out wide. Like, they can just create space from absolutely nowhere, and they are lethal fast. Part of that, though, was a consequence of Munster being a little bit loose in defence, and players not knowing combinations, and just a little bit of positional naivety from some of the new starters. Yes, and adding with, you know, concentration, not adapting to the um, conditions of that, you know, being so high up. But discipline. Yeah, there was there was one stage where, and regardless of whether the referee made a hundred percent right calls all of the time, like the communication from Matreya was a little bit confused, and he's normally someone I have a lot of time for. There's a pretty clear ruling on you can't kick the ball in a ruck, and Chris Clutie wanders around offside, shoes the ball, and gets yellow carded after I think we were carrying three penalty advantages against us in a row at that point. So he just lost patience and just went, you know what, get off. That actually happened in the Ireland match as well. Look, we need to tighten up on discipline. And I'm kind of hoping that we've only got the one trip down in South Africa this year because of the home and away rotations. So we're out of dodge now. couple of weeks rest, as you've said, back in and hit the end of November and December with a bang. And for the next few weeks, the Pro 14 might be finished, but internationals kick into gear and... We had a soft launch for the November series over the weekend. <laughs> I love that as a concept. Uh, yeah, so a couple of games of you know interest from a Pro 14 perspective or from a Six Nations. Are, are the teams in your region? Um, <laughs> a couple of them in weird locations and for weird reasons. But nevertheless, the big one for us, obviously, Ireland against Italy in Soldier Field. And what a win. 54 points to seven. It was just impressive. So I had people around in the apartment watching this and we were in a, a heated debate about whether it was comprehensive or emphatic. <laughs> and um, then the commentator finishes the game. That was a comprehensive and emphatic win. We were like, ah, I see. It can be both. <laughs> fun. Yeah. Um, it was an impressive second half, I think, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. Again, I think it was impressive that as close as the game felt in the first half, we only conceded that one try. Like our defense just on the verge of halftime was pretty good. Yeah. And like, even though... We did concede that try. We held them out for a good 10 minutes beforehand. Our line wasn't going to be breached easily. And that's the main thing you can really take from it from an iron perspective. Because that team was not the starting team. No, but there was a couple of nice moments. Like I thought Jack Conan did really well. Carried a lot of ball. Was very effective. Tyburn was everywhere. He was my man of the match. Like He really was. He was incredible. Stupid flashy Larmore. <laughs> With a sidestep, and I, I just don't understand how he can move 
in that much, much body in, that quickly, quickly yeah. in that small an area. Yeah, he's very agile. Um, speaking about Larmore, though, he was, you know, the, we're running out of superlatives, and certainly world rugby is running out <laughs> of superlatives to describe him. He, playing admittedly against a pretty bang average defence, made them look like they were glued in place. Like, just take his last try, for example. It was brilliant. It was flashy. No one got near him. Nobody wanted to get near him either, though. There was no one putting their uh, their guts on the line to try and tackle that when you're already 40-odd points behind. Exactly. So it looks great, but how much can you read into it? I'll tell you who was probably less flashy but impressed me more over the course of the game was Gary Ringrose. He is turning into the first name on my team sheet from an Ireland perspective. At 13, there is no one in Ireland playing at his level. At 13, I don't think there's anybody in Europe playing at his level. His ability to manage a defence and create space, as well as his own individual creativity, is just outstanding. He he is supreme for me. Looking across that match, our defensive leadership, especially at wide, comes from 13. I know it's a very difficult channel to defend. We all know that. But if you look at how we defend, it's actually led from that channel yeah. or whoever's in that channel at the time. So the rush comes from there. The drift comes from there. But like it's such a key position for us and how we play well it's a function of our both our attacking and our defensive systems how important 13 is probably because we built half of our team around O'Driscoll for so many years <laughs> but our defensive rush defense is managed from 13 our attacking creation that second pivot is often our outside center as well so much of the game flows through him and you forget how young he is he is just superb in his confidence in his reading of the game and it helps, obviously, when you've got a pack who are beating seven shades out of their opposing players, one through eight. But it was still pretty magnificent stuff. And given the platform our pack was creating for our scrum halves, it's such a shame that Luke McGrath and John Cooney weren't really getting the best out of the back line. Yeah, maybe it's just me and the expectations that I have, but the pacing at Rook was a little slow. Luke McGrath seemed to be a little bit hesitant. He didn't necessarily seem to be snapping the ball out to the back line. And when you've got a 10 like Carberry who can play so flat to the line, that wasn't what you were looking for. I've always had a thing about McGrath that he thinks at the ruck, not on his way to the ruck. So he makes a decision what to do once he gets there, not on the way there. Where I think Marmion, and this is me, like I'm so going to wave that kind of flag, I don't care. (laughs) He plays the ball. He's made a decision by the time he hits the ruck. As does Murray, obviously. Yeah, wrongly or rightly, he's <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Like it might be the wrong decision at times, but that ball's leaving pretty much the second he gets there, if it's there. To Which be done. means that the defense doesn't have time to reset. This defense, you could have given them until Christmas, and they wouldn't have reset properly. But other teams will be better, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. Ireland really wasn't the only Six Nations rematch on this weekend. Wales hosted Scotland in the inaugural Doddy Weir Cup. Yeah, and Wales taking home the trophy 21 points to 10. Nice to see as well that they managed to uh, put their money where their mouth was and write a check. Turns out peer pressure does work. Peer pressure, peer Peer pressure, pressure, peer pressure. pressure. But Wales actually did really well to win this. You know, it was a poor first half. It was a poor game. And especially across the board, a few players just weren't playing their best. You know, Parks, Moriarty. Jonathan Davies kind of came into it later, but it was a slow start. Probably the exception to that was George North, who is just a physical freak like tossing players aside like a giant playing in Wales seems to really suit him like I'm, I'm I can really tell that he's enjoying his rugby again yeah it's nice to see um, not really <laughs> <laughs> it's bad timing Scotland on the other hand again some good individual performances but didn't seem to have a lot of control from halfback Adam Hastings for me struggled a little bit with a step up to that level but where better to learn that than in a 
less significant game in autumn than in the Six Nations when Finn Russell gets, you know, injured France. Or, or the World Cup or something like that. You know, there's some the next twelve months there are so many big games coming up. Mm-hmm. That experience is invaluable. A better out half pairing or even performance, Scotland might have taken that game. Well, it certainly would have been a little bit closer. That Wales just seemed to be able to just edge away ahead. Not the most entertaining game, but certainly more entertaining than the other fixture of local interest. England twelve, South Africa eleven. This oh my was god, this was terrible, tedious. England were so 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 lucky to win this match. Like we'll forget about that refereeing decision. The, the incident. The incident. Like they just created nothing. Like where was their attack coming from in this game? Well, Henry Slade at 13 is a really talented player at Exeter where they're able to get the ball to him in space. Venteo appears to have all of the creativity and all of the agility of a fridge freezer. He's just no good at international level. At international level? Specifically at international <laughs> level. Um, but equally, South Africa just didn't let England have the ball for the first half. It was an incredibly dominant performance. It was an old school Two teams of playing 10-man rugby. Big, horrible gits. Let's be perfectly honest, this match is going to be dominated by one subject. It is, which is a little unfortunate, because it wasn't even the only chance South Africa had to win this just before the game. Owen Farrell actually ripped the ball in the tackle really effectively on the five-meter line. But then, a couple more phases, we've hit 80 minutes, South Africa are on maybe between halfway in the 10-meter line, and Farrell comes in with, what, for me, was a shoulder charge. Plain yeah. and simple. He made no attempt to wrap. No, like his arms flapped around as a consequence of being attached to his torso, but through no deliberate action on his part. Yes, that should be called a penalty. Other people have gone a bit too far saying red cards and things like that. I, Like, I can see in stills you can make anything look like anything. Yeah. I don't think it was a red card challenge. I don't think it makes contact with the head. No, and neither does the sighting commissioner, because it's only for red card offences that you're going to get a sighting post-game, which seems to have been lost on some of the English commentators, who are now taking no sighting as being, you know, complete absolution of all guilt and responsibility. Yeah, but, you know, the great thing about it, from a refereeing point of view, is that Wayne Barrett on, on commentary went, no, that was a penalty. You know, like you're kind of going, see, a ref, well, the best ref in the world at the moment has said that's a penalty. And like Angus Gardner is a very competent referee. He was standing there making the decision beside Ben Whitehouse, which made me nervous. But nevertheless, he still had to make the decision. He did. He made the decision. England won. And And that's kind of it. It is. And you know what? They're going to have to play an awful lot better next week when they come up against New Zealand who, it seems, nobody was able to stop winning this weekend. They started our Saturday by beating Japan out the gate, 69 points to 31, in Japan, with a second-string team. And then the New Zealand Maoris, which is now their third-string team, team, beat USA 59 points to 22. In between that, or just after that, I think the Black Ferns beat the USA women's team as well. So the juggernaut of New Zealand rugby just rumbles on. It certainly does. And it has Twickenham and Dublin in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully something will be able to trip it up. <laughs> and hopefully it's in Dublin. But we, <laughs> but we come to now the second row top performer and crowned around. And you've got our top performer. 
yeah, I did have a look and try and award this to a Pro 14 fixture, but there just weren't a lot of vintage games this weekend. No, it wasn't a marketing manager's dream, all right. It was not. So what I did do is look for at least a Pro 14 player. For me, the standout performance this round was from Tyburn in the Ireland-Italy game. He was absolutely everywhere. Grunt work in the second row, which for me is his preferred position, took line-out ball all day, was devastatingly effective in them all. And scored two tries as well to top it off. That blue scrum cap makes it so easy to watch him throughout a match. I guarantee you he gets more Man of the Match awards <laughs> as a result of the elaborate headgear. I just think he had a really good game. And there was a question as to how he would lift up to that level. No question Duck needed. to water. Duck Absolutely. to water. He looks so assured and confident at an international level. So, Porik, you had to pick out our clown of the round. Did you manage to keep a Pro 14? I did. I really did. And I've taken it from the Connacht Dragons match. Okay. David Howells, the Dragons winger, for not doing what wingers should do and hold on to the ball when they're given a ball on a two-on-one on the try line and knocking on. Oh, I saw this. This was like the second or third try that they butchered. It was the third one. And from that moment, Conf worked their way up the field within two minutes, got their first mall try. Like It just seemed to open the floodgates. We got three tries within five minutes. So David Howells is clown of the round, not just for butchering the try, but for breaking the dragon's spirit. Pretty much. It seemed to be the point where dragons went, we're not going to win this. Are we? <laughs> and just scape up. Oh, no. So the second row top performer, Tyke Byrne, and the second row crown the round, David Howells. Very good. We move on to next week's fixtures, which is a full calendar of internationals. And just quick running order, I guess. We have Italy v. Georgia in the Who Should Be in the Five Nations. That is such an interesting game. It is. Really, really interesting game. Uh, Scotland take on Fiji then, later on Saturday afternoon. And the first big game of the weekend, England versus New Zealand at Twickenham. I can't wait to see New Zealand win. What are are you doing? (laughs) If he curses, like, uh, doesn't even, uh, just move on quickly. Just move on. What else is happening? Two teams that like re- have never played each other before, Wales versus Australia. <laughs> I mean, Australia, after losing the summer tour to Ireland and getting absolutely roundly beaten around the place in the rugby championship, must be looking forward to coming back to Europe to beat their old, you know, whipping, whipping post. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you'd like to think Wales will give them a game because Australia are absolute garbage at the moment. Yeah. Fingers crossed for a Northern Hemisphere win. Then not long after that kicks off, Ireland hosts Argentina. Which I am going to. I hate you. I yeah. hate you so much. So much. <laughs> Managed to get some tickets at the last minute. <laughs> that should be a good game. Again, two teams who know each other pretty well. And Argentina seem to be starting to you know, time their run to form for the World Cup, as they always seem to do. Yeah, it's so rare. Such a rare occurrence. Yeah. And then the last match of the evening is France versus South Africa. Ooh. I honestly don't know what to expect from that game. Well, it's two teams and anybody could turn up. It could be any kind of like really, really good France against really, really bad South Africa or really, really good both teams or nonsense. I'd like really, really, really good teams because that should be a game worth watching and worth investing in. Fingers crossed. Either way, that is a busy Saturday. And we'll be back next week to recap all those matches. And keep an eye on your newsfeed. For all of you who are subscribed, we're trying to push out a bonus episode. So watch this space. And don't forget to keep an eye out on social media as well. We're on facebook.com forward slash the second row. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at the second row. That is 2ND, not the word second. So until next time, take care, goodbye, and thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.